We're back in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, this morning as we come back. And uh, I just wanted to um, kind of focus on that a little bit, too. I was going to mention also that uh, Courtney Myers is here one last time. She, they were up front just recently because they're going back to finish up some missionary training. We won't be seeing them again for a while. So, Courtney, it's good to have you here. We're praying for you as you guys travel. And Stephen is in the Air Force Reserve today, I think. Is that right? Yeah, he is. Okay, so so, so um, you might get a chance to greet Courtney on your way out. But anyway, before we really get started, I thought we'd just read through a few of those verses before we really get into this, kind of in my introduction, introduction here. And um, I'm so fascinated by the Gospel of Mark because of the speedy nature, the newspaper kind of headline nature that this, bo- this Gospel seems to have. It talks about the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, and as, uh, as Enrico said, it just skips over a whole bunch of other stuff you see in the others because he want, goes right to the heart of the issue of the Gospel, the beginning of the Gospel. And he gives a quote from, from the book of Isaiah. And then down in verse 4, it says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching baptism of repentance. We talked about that last week in those verses. Uh, it, was, uh, it was in the wilderness around or near Jerusalem, but not in Jerusalem, obviously, between there and the Dead Sea that he preached about repentance there. And people were coming out by the thousands from Jerusalem. Verse, verse 6 says, John was clothed with camel hair and... Um, he ate wild critters out in the, uh, in the wilderness there. His diet was locust and wild honey. And he was preaching, saying, one is coming after me. And, and he was preaching about the coming of Christ, but he had not yet seen him. He's preaching about this, but Jesus had not yet seen him or each other, except for the fact when they were very, very small babies six months apart, possibly then, but as adults, it doesn't seem like he had really seen Jesus here. So now we come to the, the verses for today, which is 9, 10, and 11. Just three verses today, so it should be pretty easy for you to follow up. But verse 9 says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. We'll just stop. We'll take one verse at a time, and I'll put them up on the screen. This is really... This is really what I would call Christ's own self-identification as the Messiah as he comes. He's identifying himself that in those days, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth. He left his house, he left his home where his family was. Nazareth is to the north, about 75 miles from uh, Jerusalem, where John was probably in that very near vicinity of Jerusalem. So Jesus really had to, to leave, and, and, and Galilee was the area that Jerusalem is in. Jerusalem was a city, and Galilee is a wider area than, that also has the Sea of Galilee there. And uh, it was kind of an obscure place. It's just kind of good to note this. As Jesus was coming from that, Galilee was not the place you want to come from if you were, in, uh, if you were with the in crowd, using a term from the 70s, I think. Uh, uh, there. Not the desirable place to be from. A lot of people didn't like that place. It was considered to be secondary, although it's a beautiful place if you go there today, far more beautiful than the desert area of um, where Jerusalem is in Judea. John 1 verse 46, later on in the Gospels, it says that Nathan said to someone he was talking to, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? And that's Nazareth within Galilee. And uh, Philip said, well, come and see. So in most people's thinking, to be from Nazareth within the area of Galilee wasn't a good thing. And so as Jesus came to be baptized, that was something that kind of just came with him. So Nazareth was kind of an obscure village. That's the word about that. We all know about Jesus of Nazareth. Um, Last time I was uh, in Israel, I got a chance to go to Nazareth. It's up on a hilltop. It's about, uh, like I say, it's about 75 miles north of Jerusalem, and it's about 15 to 20 miles southeast, southwest of the Sea of Galilee. And it's a big, uh, kind of a big hill there, you know. And you drive up to it and kind of some switchbacks and you get up on top. And this is where this little village was. It's a much bigger village today, but it's still there. 
And you can go there and you can see the, the Nazareth experience in the carpenter shop that was something like the one Jesus was in. And a couple of places that were probably right about within feet of wherever Jesus may have lived there. But Nazareth, Nazareth was there. It was the home of Joseph, Mary. It's uh, where Mary um, was visited by the angel told that she was going to have a baby Jesus and all of that in Luke chapter 1. But Mark just kind of overlooks all of that. But it gives us a little bit of a perspective to kind of see where he was from. So as he comes, he's coming now, and Jesus is in his late 20s. He's probably right around 29 or 30 years of age there. And um, he is been at home all that time. He's probably been working in the carpenter shop with his father. His father disappears off the scene. We know at some point, we don't know what happened to him. It seems to me that his father may have died early and they had a number of children and Jesus kind of became the oldest one that was caring for the rest of the family. I think it gives him some experience of what it would be like to be a parent from a human perspective. But uh, he's coming from a carpenter shop and Jesus unlike royalty that would become kings and so forth, lived doing hard work in an off-beaten place that wasn't looked at with any kind of um, positive attitude. And um, he was with a family, his mother and his brothers and sisters, half if you would. And um, he spent a good part of uh, 30 years there, a good part of 30 years there really kind of unknown at this time, late 20s there. And he came on his own when it was the right time. I like the verse. It, in those days, Jesus came to Nazareth, says, from Nazareth to Galilee. I, I like to think that Jesus, of course, knew exactly when it was time to come, and he knew the exact moment, the exact hour that he should leave, and he had to walk that 75 miles there when he left Nazareth. Um, he came on his own and probably by himself as he traveled down the Jordan Valley to get near to where this baptismal site was in this forsaken desert atmosphere where John was between the Dead Sea and Jerusalem, not very far apart actually. He didn't come too soon and he didn't come too late. It was absolutely perfect timing. I'm always reminded of that in our own lives. Things happen. We say, oh, why did this happen to happen right now, you know? I blew my tire out in the middle of the desert somewhere. Why did that happen to happen? Well, you always have to recognize that God knows all about every tire you blow out and where you are and what you're thinking and, and all those kinds of things. And maybe you did something to contribute to whatever is happening in your life. But God's timing is always perfect, isn't it? In life, in all the events of life, and even, even in death. So, here he comes, and it says he was, came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, I said before, John is not the first Baptist, by the way. <laughs> he's the guy that did the baptizing, and by the fact that he's called John the Baptist is, is sort of really maybe a little bit of a negative designation because it was unusual for him to baptize Jews. If you remember, all Jerusalem was coming out to this baptismal site as he was there. And uh, they were coming out because this was really kind of like proselyte baptism that they did for Gentiles, but it was Jews that were coming out to be baptized, not the Gentiles necessarily. And if you were a Gentile and you wanted to be following the God of Israel, you came to believe in the God of Israel, then they would baptize you kind of like proselyte baptism, and that's what, why it's called that. And then there were some other things that they did um, to kind of make you part of the Jewish state in name only, but you really weren't Jewish in blood. And so John is doing this baptism, and those, the Gentiles were the ones that were baptized, but in this case now it's, it's the Jews, remember, because they were 
in essence, by being baptized and by John's preaching, which was a preaching of repentance, was saying that you Jews are just as bad, as wicked as the Gentiles. You need to be baptized. That's a pretty amazing thing that was going on right there. And so they were coming out by the thousands and they were flocking out of Jerusalem. And um, John's preaching must have been pretty fiery. Must have been pretty fiery as he preached away. And he preached repentance, repentance, and be baptized. It was essentially saying that they were sinners just like the Gentiles there. And in this way, he was truly preparing the way. You know, in the other verses that we looked into last week in the prophecy, he was preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. And by doing that, God's people, that's Israel, that's whom Christ's lineage was from, they were being prepared for the coming of the Messiah. We should really think about that just a little bit when we come to church on Sunday mornings. Are we coming to do business with God? Not that God isn't everywhere, but truly when the church gathers together, not in the building, but when they gather together, the church is there and God is working in a special way and it's a divinely ordered uh, organization like none other in the world. Nothing can quite compare to the church of Jesus Christ today. So it says, uh, it says also in, in Luke, I think it says, or Matthew, it says that all Jerusalem was coming out to them. And then it says, when they had all come, then, then Jesus stepped forward to be baptized. What I'm pointing out to you there is the timing was right. I don't know how many were there, the Jordan River is not very big. I think the picture that you probably saw up on the screen a moment or two ago showed a, a picture of the river. And it's sometimes we have people have an idealized picture of the Jordan River and I wish I could go to Israel and I'd be baptized in it as this great big river like the Columbia. It's not really much more than a creek, as you can see there. And uh, a little bit muddy, too. It's coming down from Galilee and uh, then it flows into the Dead Sea where it stays and evaporates away, the lowest place on earth, there in the Dead Sea, about a thousand feet below sea level. Been there a couple times too. So, it says you baptized, it came down and was baptized by John there. He was truly preparing the way and repentance, repentance, some feel that was John's message, and I mentioned that a little bit last week, but I want to say a word or two more. Repentance is sometimes misunderstood, I believe. And I have to say that probably I didn't understand it very clearly when I first came to Christ. I think I understood somewhat of it. Clearly, repentance, some people feel, well, it's just like feeling sorry for your sins. But it's much more than that. It's much more than that, much more than feeling sorry. The word in, in the Greek means a change of mind, literally, a change of mind. You're thinking differently than you did before when you hear the gospel. A change of mind about our sin, a change of mind about God and who he is, a change of mind about our own sinfulness and who we are and all of that, a change of mind. And, and in that is the idea of a change of direction also which would be logical, change of direction. Someone described it like this, if you're on a train and it's going backwards down the track and suddenly there's a change of direction, they just reverse the engines and go the opposite direction. That's really what kind of it is like. You were going backwards and now you go forwards. Think of it that way. Repentance, that's what John was preaching change of mind about our sin, you come right with God, um, you are sorry for your sin, you do feel sorrow for it, I think that's true too, and there's a sense even in which all through life we may have feelings of sorrow for our sin, I think that's a good thing, but that doesn't mean that we don't rejoice about what Christ has done for us. So John's message was strong, and it was characterized by repentance here. And so here he comes, here comes Jesus, and Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan. And um, first thing, I just want to just make a brief comment here about the mode of baptism. It seems it's very obvious here. 
Um, it's in and it comes out. And if you look at the other two Gospels that give the account, Matthew and Luke, they do talk about going in the water, in one case, and coming out of the water. So it's very clear that it was a kind of immersion thing. In fact, the very, very word baptism, the, the root word, baptizo in the Greek, really is the idea of immersion. And in, um, in ancient Greek, it's used to speak of sinking ships. I mentioned that before, but it's very clear there. So he's baptized there in the Jordan. And um, Jordan was very, wasn't a very big place. In fact, the Jordan wasn't really a very popular place either. It's interesting, I was reading that in early rabbinic tradition, um, they, the rabbis explicitly disqualified the River Jordan for purification. It's not a place you'd go for purification, as you remember seeing in the picture. It looked kind of muddy, didn't it? So it wasn't just about washing yourself there. It was really about spiritual things. But that's where Jesus came. And Jesus wanted to be baptized there. And that was strange to John, if you remember. John, John knew who Jesus was. And Jesus had never sinned. I'm sure that he knew the story because he, were, he was a cousin, six months apart, six months older. He probably hadn't seen Jesus for his life that we know of. And that's why when Jesus comes up, he wasn't real sure who he was at first. Didn't recognize them. They didn't have, you know, email and <laughs> phones that give pictures, take pictures and you can send them to the next person in five seconds, that kind of thing. So, but he knew who Jesus was. And he knew that he was sinless and he knew some of that story. Mary, Jesus' mother, and Elizabeth, John's mother, were friends. We see them talking to each other in the other Gospels. And... Uh, some have suggested, what was the conversation like when they got together to talk? As mothers, you know. Someone said, well, Mary, she would talk with Elizabeth, and she'd say, well, Elizabeth, how's John doing? Little guy growing up, you know. Elizabeth would say, he's weird. <laughs> you know, he likes to spend time out in the wilderness, and he eats bugs and stuff. It's weird. Elizabeth would say to Mary, well, how's Jesus? Perfect. <laughs> He's perfect. I think most parents think their kids are perfect until they realize they've got a sin nature. But not in Jesus' case. That's the way it was. So Jesus came with this kind of a background and, uh, and John knows that he is sinless and it's hard for him to grasp the idea of baptizing him. It says in Matthew 3 and verse 13, it says Jesus arrived from Galilee, that's up in the north at the Jordan, to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him. We talked about that also. John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? None of us are really worthy to take that role that John was taking. John himself was not. He knew, especially in the case of baptizing Christ. Why would I baptize him? Because this is a baptism of repentance for our sin, and Jesus has never sinned. Why would I do that, Jesus? I'm the one that should be baptized by you. So there's a little tension there. But when you read the next verse in Matthew 3.15, it says, Jesus answering said to him, permit it at this time. Permit it at this time. It's only once. And more or less, he's telling John, go ahead and do it. Allow it to happen once. I'm telling you to do that. He had the authority to say that, of course. For in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him. Permitted him to go into the river, symbolizing death, go through the river of death, which Christ ultimately does for us in his own death. And Jesus was baptized, identifying with humanity. Identifying with humanity. Self-identification, that's what this point is about here in verse 9. 
So Christ is identifying himself with sinners by being baptized here in this case. 2 Corinthians 5.21 comments on this topic also. When we read about Christ, it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If Christ never had identified with us in our sin, we could never identify with him in his holiness, Graham Scroggie said. And he was the one who uh, succeeded Spurgeon in his ministry. So Christ is uh, really self-identifying here with us in our sin as he goes into the water and comes up out taking on our sin, so to speak, and doing that which uh, he would do ultimately. So, baptism is the act that most clearly, I think, pictures the idea of washing away sin. That's one of the, one of the things that goes with it, obviously. We often say that when a person is baptized, it symbolizes the death, going into the water, the burial, and then coming up out of the water of the resurrection. Death, burial, and resurrection. It symbolizes that. 1 Corinthians 15 makes that pretty clear. Romans 6 makes that very clear as it speaks of that also. But it also has the idea of washing away sin. Washing away sin. But Christ's sin was already washed away. But he said, permit it this one time. Because I am going to take on the sin of the world. Essentially. So uh, he stood in our place in a very real sense in his baptism too. That's a question that you can discuss a little bit this week in your salt groups. It's, it's one that kind of blows our minds just a little bit. And the idea of repenting, changing our mind, metanoeo, and changing our direction, all of that. And what aspects of that in your life are happening today? I mean, I think all through our lives we have a tendency to change the direction as we get, get it right. In one sense, we're perfect the moment we come to believe, but in another sense, practically, it's, a per, it's progressive sanctification throughout life there. So Christ was self-identifying here with humanity as he came down to the river and as he was baptized, even though he didn't need it because he was perfect. He wasn't um, a baptism that he essentially needed because of his sinfulness, because he had no sinfulness. But he would take on the sins of the world. Now you come to the next verse, verse 10, the next point here. And now in verse 10 we have spirit consecration taking place here. Spirit consecration. Consecration is sort of the idea of the act of making or declaring something righteous. Declaring something to be righteous. And um, we see that happening immediately in verse 10. It says, coming up out of the water, we saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And when you look at this verse, the first thing that you notice is what word? Immediately. Immediately, he uses that term. The other uh, gospel writers don't use it. They speak about a few other details and so forth. When you look at a parallel New Testament, you can see those. very interesting to see. But John goes right to the point there. Immediately coming up out of the water. And um, talking about the importance of what was taking place right here. So he comes up out of the water. Of course, that's the idea of coming out of the water. Once again, the idea of immersion is, is taken here very clearly in this particular text. And Mark puts the emphasis on coming out of the water, which pictures that resurrection that we see later, of course, after he is resurrected. And we see in the New Testament church, they baptized and they came up out of the water, pictured that, Romans 6. So he came up out of the water and he saw the heavens opening. He saw them opening there. And that's also fascinating too when you look at it there as, he, as, as Christ looked up. The heavens were opening up 
and it's interesting, when you go to Luke 3.21, you can jot it down, look at it later, and talk about it tonight or whenever your group is. In Luke 3.21, it says that this happened while Jesus was praying. John doesn't tell us that. He just skips over that. But Jesus was praying during the baptism, and as he came up out of the water, after being baptized, the heavens were opening there. Something to be said about prayer. It all happened after he was baptized, this heavenly thing. The heavens are open. What's it like to have the heavens opened? Uh, it doesn't mean it's a clear sky. It doesn't mean that it's cloudless day. <laughs> it doesn't mean that there's a sunspot. It doesn't mean the aurora borealis, which is always fun to see, which is usually at night. But it is mentioned a few times in the Bible, the heavens opening. Ezekiel saw it, Ezekiel 1.1. 1, 1. While I was by the river Chabar, among the exiles, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. And that's a really fascinating one if you go back and if you remember in your Bible reading, reading through that when he saw the heavens opened and, and goodness, he saw the glory, divine glory of God. He saw strange creatures. He saw, saw strange looking vehicles. He saw wheels spinning and going all different directions. And it was awesome. And what does it all mean? Tell me if you know because I'm not sure what that all means, but it means something about what heaven is all about and where God is going with history. And the, uh, the Jewish people needed that vision right then because they were pretty down and it was to be a great encouragement to them that God was at work. Stephen, later on, after the church begins, is stoned. He is one of the people in the church, the first one to die as a martyr in, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 56. And um, he had... Uh, been fearless about preaching the gospel in the early church and people didn't like it, not the church people, but the Jews. And so they stoned him to death and they gathered around. And it says in verse 56 of Acts chapter 7, it says, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And of course, and then he died. That was an encouragement to the early church that was facing persecution at that time too. So um, I wouldn't go around waiting for the heavens to open to encourage you, but just read these verses and that should do the trick, you know. But those kinds of things happen a few times in divine history. Later on, we see it again in, um, in the gospel, uh, in um, John the Apostle's record of what he saw on the island of Patmos in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, he saw it in chapter 4 and verse 1, after these things I looked, it says, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like the sound of the trumpet speaking with me and said, come up here. And then he's just this vision of heaven and all that, which is really what the book of Revelation is about. We see pictures of heaven in that in that book, and then in chapter 19, verse 11, it says, I saw heaven open. Again, he sees it, John does there. The Apostle John, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. So the heavens were opened. Heavens were opened several times in history, and it's happening right here at John's baptism. And Jesus sees it. Jesus sees it. And it says here, um, he saw the heavens opening and spirit like a dove. The spirit like a dove. It was descending upon him. And um, I want you to notice one thing. When you look at the accounts of the dove, it's mentioned in all three of the synoptic gospels that refer to this event. Um, it says in every situation that it was like a dove or as a dove. It doesn't say that it was a dove. It was a dove. It doesn't say that. Uh, it's interesting that the dove was the thing that they saw. They didn't see a raven. They didn't see an eagle. They didn't see a crow. They didn't see a woodpecker or a sparrow or anything else. They saw a dove, or he saw a dove. He saw a dove. There was a reason for that. A reason for that. And, uh, and it was like a dove. It's best described as like a dove. A lot of things that, that these... Um, Prophets and people like Stephen and Ezekiel and John the Apostle saw, 
they were trying to describe it the best they could and the marvelous things that were before their eyes. The dove is, uh, I understand, I don't recall seeing it, but I've heard that in, in Europe where we have these ancient buildings that came as a result of the Reformation and all of that, uh, huge, big cathedrals and so forth, and um, we, Chris and I, had the, the wonderful privilege of going up and standing in Martin Luther's pulpit. And uh, when you go into these things, there's a little stairway that kind of makes almost a 360-degree turn. And then you're up about this far off the ground. It's basically so people can see you and they can hear you better. And you walk into this pulpit, and it's about so big, about two or three people could stand in it. And there's a little thing to put the big Bible on. It was a big Bible that was there. But up above it, up above it, there's a round thing above you, almost like a cover or a hat or something like that. And it's said that in many cases there's a dove carved into that right above where the preacher stands. Now why do you think that's there? Because it symbolizes the Spirit of God working through the preaching of the Word is what it obviously symbolizes there. So, so as um, John is there Jesus comes up out of the water. He saw the spirit like, like a dove descending upon him, descending. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 1, it says, I will put my spirit upon him. I will put my spirit upon him. And it confirmed really who Jesus was in some ways, but it was clearly identifying Christ not only in that, but in the spiritual sense as the Holy Spirit was involved in what was going on there. Now, this is about as near as you ever could come to perhaps, quote unquote, seeing the Holy Spirit. You can't see the Holy Spirit because he is a spirit. And uh, we don't see that kind of thing. But the dove somehow, if it was a dove or looked like a dove or sort of whatever it was, was, was really visual in some sense there in, in this. And we know that this pointed out that now Christ is connected with the Holy Spirit too. And uh, all Christ's works and all Christ's words and everything he, does, he did was really mediated by the Holy Spirit in his work. He was fully God, fully man fully connected with the Holy Spirit in this mystical kind of way. And together, it's for our benefit. It says in Hebrews 9, verse 14, it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, the eternal Spirit, the eternal Spirit means God, offered himself without blemish to God, cleansing your, cleanse your conscience and from dead works to serve a living God. In other words, if the imperfect sacrifices that were offered by Israel were received, how much more would the ultimate sacrifice of Christ be received? John chapter 3 and verse 34 comments too, it says, For he, that would be Christ, whom God has sent, speaks the words of God, for he, that's Christ against referring to, gives the Spirit without measure. John the Baptist is the one who is speaking there in that particular case. He's giving that verse of Scripture. And on the other hand, uh, we see here that the idea, of course, is that Christ had all of the Spirit, he had all the gifts of the Spirit, if you would say. He had everything that the Spirit had to offer. And in his ministry, as he went about, we see, as we see human side of God, God became man. The Spirit was there in the midst of that as well as the Father. So, on the other hand, however, we have been given the Spirit when we come to Christ. It says that in 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians tells us that we are given the Spirit. The Spirit comes into our life the moment we come to belief. But we don't all have the same gifts. 
Some were given one kind of gift, some were given another kind of gifts. And of course, those were during the early church. And there's a whole discussion about that that I won't go into at the moment. But we do have gifts and abilities, and the Spirit of God is at work in our lives. And we probably don't have the same amount of the Spirit that Jesus did because of our sinful nature also. So here we have, here we have self-identification, and we have the idea of the Spirit confirmation here as well. And now we come to the last verse, the last verse, verse 11, verse 11 here. And this is what I call divine affirmation, divine affirmation there. Spirit consecration and divine affirmation. It's an audible sound now that is heard from heaven as Jesus has come out of the water there. And it's interesting, one of the other Gospels mentions as he did, as he did his baptism was after Israel had already been baptized. So I see the picture that many people from Jerusalem that were there for that baptism were all done being baptized and they're watching this whole thing. God's timing is always perfect, isn't it? Major, majority, audience watching. Anyway, verse 11 says, The voice came out of heavens, out of the heavens, a voice. And um, they hear it. They hear it. Now, there have been voices from the heavens before in the Gospels. The angels came and spoke and so forth and so on. But those were all pretty much private kind of situations. They spoke to Mary, the angels that came and they spoke to Joseph and uh, Zacharias and all of those kinds of places in the earlier parts of the New Testament. But those were private kind of situations. This is the first public voice of God in about 400 years since the closing of the Old Testament. Something big is going to happen. Something big is going to happen. The voice came out of the heavens and says, You are my beloved son, he said. In you I am well pleased. Well pleased. That's what he heard. Interesting, isn't it? Came out of the heavens. You're my beloved son. Identifies the voice as being God, speaking to Christ here. We would see that. God the Father in its fulfillment, once again, of the book of Isaiah, the major book of the Old Testament that speaks about the coming of the Messiah. 66 chapters. In Isaiah 42, it says, Behold, my servant, that would be Christ, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So you have the idea of the spirit there, but you have the idea of the voice here in the text in, uh, here in Mark. So, God is speaking. This is my beloved son. And it's prophecy mentioned in, in the book of Isaiah. I, I so love it um, because when you um, go to Jerusalem, you can go to the scroll of the book where they have the book of Isaiah, which was the, it was the main scroll that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948 when they discovered the scrolls. It was the main, not the only one, but the main one that was most complete and it was found in Israel just at the and the eve of the birth of the new nation, and it's the major Old Testament prophecy that speaks about the coming of the Messiah most clearly. And so here it is, here it is, my servant mentioned here. It's interesting this quote is there. By the way, chapter 42 is in the latter part of the book of Isaiah. So if you look at the first uh, 39 chapters, it's more like the Old Testament than the last 26 chapters, which is more like the New Testament, starting in um, chapter 40. Um, I know that the chapter divisions were not made, um, were not inspired, but the, the words are. Chapter divisions were added later. But that portion they recognize being much like the New Testament, it seems like. And it's interesting, chapter 42 is in that portion that's more like the New Testament as it speaks about prophecy there. God's timing and God's working of things and bringing it all together is so amazing, isn't it? And so he says, you are my beloved son. God is audibly, audibly actually confirming who Christ is. 
No question about it now as he comes out. It's a, it's a confirmation, or as some have called it, a coronation of Christ as the new king. And then he says, in you I am well pleased. In you I am well pleased. Last part of, verse, of the verse there. In verse 11. So, so what, was, what was God saying about being well pleased in Christ? I think that he was well pleased with Christ in his act of obedience and coming down and being baptized, being baptized in a baptism that was a baptism of repentance for sin and because of sin, even though he had no sin, he was well pleased with that. Permitted it just this time, Jesus said, if you remember, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This is what God wanted. And Jesus was obedient to the last de de decree. And then I think it's, it was, uh, was well-pleasing for God, too, because with Christ's identification with the sinful race, as he was being baptized, he was identifying with the sinfulness of man as he was going to take the place of them. And so we read in Isaiah 53. We know 53 pretty well because we often read it during communion. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sins of many, it says, and interceded for the transgressors. I think God was well pleased at what was going to come. And Jesus, just as he was there, identifying with the human race of which he would soon die for. Three years later. So this is really God's confirmation or coronation of the new Messiah, the King, the King coming. Therefore, therefore, when we look in the Gospel of Mark here, we see, we see four witnesses here. It's kind of interesting when you look at this to who Christ was. We see Mark himself said Jesus is the Son of God in verse 1. In verse 1. And then in verses 2 and 3, we see... Um, the prophets said that Jesus is Lord. So we have the prophecy there in verses 2 and 3. The prophets said that. And uh, John the Baptist said that Jesus was the one after me who is mightier than I in verses 7 and 8. So John the Baptist said it. And then lastly now we have God the Father. God the Father audibly saying it also. So here we have really the first really clear picture in the New Testament of the Trinity. The Trinity, all taking place in Christ's baptism. The Son comes to be baptized and identify with mankind and the problem of sin in the world. The Holy Spirit comes down from heaven looking something like a dove and landing on Jesus. And in that area as Jesus was praying and he looks up and sees this, symbolizing the promise of the Holy Spirit as mentioned in the book of Isaiah chapter 44 also I will pour my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants Isaiah 41 also and then we have the father who speaks audibly from heaven and, and they hear the they hear the voice and I don't know how much the other people heard it but certainly Jesus heard it and um, there was a big crowd there a big crowd there that day they were all there and they were all done so there was it was witnessed and so now, John's ministry is over. Just like that. Just like that. It's over. His job is done. He's prepared the way. He's prepared the way. It's the only time in history in the book of the New Testament that we see John and Jesus together. And it's only for a few minutes. It's only for a few minutes. He talks about him later on. Calls him the greatest of those who've been born among, among women. But it's the only time we really see them together outside of the birth narrative mentioning that. And like I say, maybe when Mary and Elizabeth were talking, maybe John was out in the desert then, for all we know, you know, there. So uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. John's ministry kind of winds down very quickly. He only had ministry of about six months. His ministry winds down rather, rather quickly now, and um, he soon, he soon um, calls out um, Herod for his immorality, for his... Um, wrongful sexual relationship with this woman that was not his wife and so forth and uh, so he doesn't like that and of course we know the story that John ends up being decapitated as a result of that and he loses his life and Jesus calls him the greatest of those who've been born among women none has arisen greater than John the Baptist Matthew 11 verse 11 
So what can we say all about this? We kind of bring it to a conclusion here. What can we say all about this? I think, first of all, we can see, <clears throat> we can see clearly this is really Jesus coming out. Maybe that term doesn't really have enough weight to it. But it's, it's his coronation as the king. Um, if you've watched any of the royal kind of activities with the weddings taking place, or recently we, we saw the movie called The Crown. It spoke about... Um, the queen's becoming coronated as a crown, as, a, as the queen. I mean, uh, some years ago now, she's the oldest living, longest living monarch in England. It's interesting because I have a little bit of heritage there. Something like that. This is the coronation of Christ, but it is not like royalty in that sense because this was down at a dirty river and he came from a backwoods place and um, he was willing to take on the sins of the world, but this is a very different kind of king than the world has, but it is a coronation nevertheless from heaven. His baptism was really an act of obedience here. We see that. The Father approved it, and the Holy Spirit was there to affirm it also, and Jesus' ministry would now begin, and John's ministry would decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease, John said. And it's interesting because when you look at the next verse, which we won't go into in verse 11, what does it say? Immediately, he goes out into the desert. Immediately. This is the beginning of Christ's real ministry as he spends time in the desert to prepare him. Like the prophets of old, they pretty much came out of a wilderness desert scene where they could be alone with God. And that's another story for next week. But our baptism is not totally divided from that. It is, it is different in some ways because we are sinners and we look forward to Christ to save us. And in his baptism, he was sinless. And in his baptism, he looked forward to identifying with us. But Christ's ministry started at his baptism and it was his coronation for all those who would follow. That would be us, I trust. John prepared the way and so forth. And so, where are you? Have you been baptized? I'd ask you that question first of all. Have you been baptized in obedience to what the Scripture says? Of course. We come to the New Testament. We see the New Testament church beginning. And we see Peter preaching at Pentecost in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. And after he preaches, he does not give an invitation because he doesn't need to because the people come up to him instead. And they say, what must we do to be saved? And one of the things that he says there, you repent and be baptized repent and be baptized there acts chapter 2 and verse 38 you are baptized not so that you will be saved but because you are saved is the idea there some people think the baptism well it's kind of optional it doesn't really save you which is true it doesn't save you water baptism does not save you but it's commanded by the Lord himself. Go therefore and make disciples. Matthew 28, as Jesus was appearing to his disciples in one of the last times we'd see him on earth after his resurrection. He says, go therefore and make disciples. Doing what? Baptizing them. Baptizing them. It's not optional, really. It's commanded by the Lord, and to disregard it is sin. Sin, ultimately. You don't always baptize people the very minute because uh, it's not practical to do that, but we try to get to it as soon as we can. But baptism is the symbol of believing, the symbol of following Christ in the New Testament. And it often meant that your life was on the line because you were considered a Christian now. It wasn't a good thing to be a Christian in Jerusalem in those days. Or some people say, well, I'm afraid of the water. Well, I'm afraid of the water too. That's why I wear a life jacket. Not when I'm baptizing people, but uh, you know what I mean. Uh, pretty much you don't have to worry about baptizing, being drowned in the water of the tank. You've got a much better chance of drowning in your swimming pool or someplace like that down at the beach. Much better chance. But he descended into the waters of death and he came up out of them. And we should be willing also to forego what he commanded. So... Don't be afraid of getting in front of people. That's the third major thing that people often say, I, I, I can't get in front of people. Well, Jesus died on the cross for everybody to see for you 
I mean, uh, why is that such a big deal to just stand in front of a bunch of nice people in the church who love it that you're being baptized and will clap and pray for you? Not a big deal. So um, we just need to overcome those fears and just weigh in what's really important here and take that step. Or maybe you don't understand any of those things and it all sounds a bunch of, like a bunch of gibberish and you're not sure what this whole thing about Christianity is about. It is about following the Lord of all history who became the Messiah, who became the King of Kings, who's going to come back, by the way. And that's one of those heavens open kind of thing where we see him in Revelation 19 coming back. But for all who come to recognize our own sinfulness, recognize our own failures, even if it's only one sin that we really remember or recall that is a problem, to recognize that and turn to Christ for forgiveness in Him alone with a true attitude of repentance, change of mind about our sin, change of mind about God, change of mind about our direction in life to follow Christ and Christ alone and nothing else. Not your career, not your favorite things to do, and not trying to be somebody, but to follow Him who is the person who died for you. So is anything preventing you? Or do you need to? God will speak to your heart. I would trust. We're going we're gonna to sing here and I'm going to close in a word of prayer first, but before we do, if you have any questions about those, please come and see Enrico and I after the service. We'll be up front. We'd be willing to talk to you. That's what we're here for. And we want to speak with those who have those sincere needs. Um, you say, well, where are we going to be baptized if we have a baptism? Well, our tank is uh, in storage at the moment and I don't know. We'll find a place. There are rivers around here and things like that if need be. They're just cold, so. But don't let that scare you off. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you, Lord, for the picture of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. And now we see the full weight of the Trinity in this passage, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all interacting here as he comes out to be the newly crowned king. Not just of Israel, but of all the universe, really. Maybe we be willing to follow him. Maybe we be willing to trust him. Maybe we be willing to submit to him in every way we pray. In Christ's name, amen.